morning, please take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16 and the first verse, we'll read through verse 4. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Could you also turn ahead to Exodus 19, 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Thank you. You can be seated. Children, you can go to Children's Church. You remember two weeks ago we looked at the end of Exodus 15. And we noted that Exodus 15 has a following chapter. There's more than the crossing of the I'm sorry, Exodus 14, there's more than the crossing of the Red Sea. And I shared with you then, the first 15 chapters can be an expression of God's faithfulness to deliver Israel from Egypt. And the next chapters of the book are about God getting Egypt out of the people. And that's what we're working on today. And I want to remind you that often... God's work of sanctification includes hardships. And some of those are dire hardships. They're hardships that we have to confess we couldn't endure on our own. That's the nature of, for example, the first chapter of James. Know this, that when you walk through these hardships, it is the perfecting and the maturing of your faith. So count it a joy. The need for us this morning is in the process of going through Hardship or wilderness journey, the need for us is to see our shepherd. We need to see and be able to identify our shepherd, what he is doing and how he is near to us in our pilgrimage. The title that I've given for these two sermons, this is part two of as long or as often as you eat or drink. Um, in the best laid plans of mice and men, this sermon was supposed to be last week, and uh, that, that changed. And so communion was last week. 
So as pastors, we, we discuss, well, okay, what are we going to do? Because frankly, I don't think you can faithfully preach Exodus 16 and refer to John 6 and then not finish by taking communion. Um, so we said, well, what are we going to do? Should we wait and take communion next week? And we said, well, none of us really have a, a burden to do less communion, so let's just do it twice in a row. And so we are taking communion again today, and I trust that no one is concerned about having their soul nourished by a reminder of Christ's work at Calvary two times in a row. As we look at this eating and drinking, this provision of God, as the people leave the Red Sea and they, they wander into the wilderness at Sinai, they, they face four crises. The first crisis was in chapter 15. The people are without water. They get to a place where there is water that for some reason is undrinkable. And then we'll see here in 16, there's no food. Again, later in 17, there's going to be no water. And then lastly, there's going to be a conflict with a desert tribe that they're going to have conflict with, a confrontation. And in each of these trials, the Lord is showing himself faithful that he, in fact, is the one who will save his people. Here we see clearly it is not only the grace of God that has delivered the children of Israel, but it is also going to be the grace of God that will sustain the children of Israel in their journey. That's important for us to remember. It is not only the grace of God that saves his people, it is also the grace of God that sustains his people. Pastor Josh referred to it in his prayer. We are not somehow now savable through some internal effort. But we are still dependent on the grace of God. After the great victory and the biggest test of crossing the Red Sea, we have these circumstances that seem to threaten them and they, they doubt and we see their doubt in their grumbling. Now, in chapter 15, you might remember, let me just review, we looked at three points from chapter 15. The fact that when they were wandering in the wilderness without anything to drink, their thirst seemed to be magnified by the fact that they didn't know where they were. The Bible says they left the border of Egypt and didn't know that place. Their thirst produced grumbling when it would have been, I want you to hear this. This is, this is one little, really, really important part pastorally. Their thirst produced grumbling. It could have appropriately produced crying. I want you to know that. There's nothing that we're studying in chapters 15, 16, or 17 that tells you that you should somehow hide your grieving from your Father in heaven. But there's a difference between grumbling and crying. You remember the imagery we used? The grumbler shakes his fist at the heavens and says, this isn't going right. The child who cries out to a father that they are dependent on lifts open hands and says, I need you. It is okay to cry to your father. It honors your father for you to confess your dependence on him. But they grumble. And then we saw in that text that thirst is sometimes satisfied by logs and sometimes by laws. And God provided. They were lost. They grumbled. God graciously gave them drink. Now, for this week, we'll have four more points to that. So, 
We're starting with basically point number four. Here is the first one. It's from the first eight verses. It is sin. The people grumble about their lack of food. And then we'll see, secondly, God's grace. Then we'll also see God's law. And then lastly, God's faithfulness. So let's start with, in the pattern of sin, grace, law, faithfulness. Let's start with sin in the first eight verses. We already read up to verse 4, so would you join me in reading 5 through 8. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gathered the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see that the glo- you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, you grumbled against him? What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Their sin is a sin of grumbling about their lack of food. They are in the sixth week since the Red Sea. The Bible tells us they're in the 15th day of the second month. And the whole congregation in verse 2 grumbles. Look at the grumbling. They said, it would have been better off for us to just die there at the hand of the Lord alongside the Egyptians. I mean, listen to that. On the night of the Passover, when death visits every home not covered by the blood, they get six weeks outside the Red Sea and say, we should have just all suffered that same fate. Would have been better. That's illogical grumbling. And to add to that, they say, oh, it was so much better for us in slavery. We sat by the meat pot and had as much as we wanted. <laughs> what? That is, that is completely illogical. But that's the nature of grumbling. It is illogical. In verses 7 and 8, Moses makes it clear the nature of their grumbling is in fact blasphemy. He says, The Lord has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we? We're just messengers. We are relaying to you what He has said, and your grumbling against us is in fact grumbling against God. And the grumbling is blasphemy because the problem with grumbling is that it comes from a temptation to believe that God is either too small to do anything or too indifferent to care. Do you understand that? I think that we could apply that statement to all of our grumbling and find that it's relevant. All of our grumbling is a temptation to conclude that either God is too small to do anything about it or too indifferent to care about it. What are those things that we find ourselves grumbling the most about these days? Oh, I'm such a cynical creature by nature. Like five things just came to my head and I thought, don't even say those. 
And it would resonate with you, and you, you, most of you would nod along and say, yeah, I, I heard that. And we would grumble. There's so many things that happen in the fall that we think, that, that is terrible. And, and I'm really tempted to shake my fist at the heavens if I don't remember God is not too weak to do anything about it, and he certainly does care. So it's happening under his rule and watch. And so I can be guarded from grumbling. There's a good lesson here for us about our response to hardship. I want to, Before I leave this point, I just want to say a word to children, because I think this point is especially relevant to children, not just children. It's probably relevant to many of us. You hear what they said? The people of Israel are in the wilderness, and they said... I'm starving. When's dinner? So children, I want to talk to you about that for a minute. I, I want to say, because that's something you might say sometimes, right? We go right to starvation. Um, and so when you come and say, I'm starving, you're expressing a need, which is sincere. You really need food, often. And when you express that need, I want to encourage you to express that need like a cry to God who you are dependent on, not a complaint about the parents God has given you who seem to not care about nutrition. You can trust that God knows what you need before you ask. You can trust that God knows you're hungry. You can trust that God knows that you're not there yet. You can trust that God knows she is bugging you. You can trust that God knows. And be careful to learn the difference between grumbling and crying out to God. That's a lesson for children that we can all learn from. Be careful in these first eight verses that you know the difference between the sin of grumbling and the childlike dependence of crying out. Let me go then to the next one because there is sin, but there is grace. And the second point is grace God provides manna from heaven. Moses tells Aaron to gather the people to hear about God's grace. As soon as he speaks, the people look toward the wilderness and they see what, what I, I assume is what we, we refer to as the Shekinah glory. Like they had the pillar leading them. And in this moment of communication, the pillar takes on a presence of God before their eyes. Let's look at verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord. He has heard your grumbling. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat. In the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. I have no idea what that looks like. I'd like to be really creative and explain. So this is how that, I have no idea. That is a bizarre statement. Quail came up and <laughs> covered the ground. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine a flake-like thing as fine as frost on the ground. 
when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Could you just say that? Say, what is it? Manna. I'll say more about that in a second. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is, this is nothing other than a gracious response to a sinful disobedience. The people grumbled. They pretend like their grumble is against Moses and Aaron. In fact, it's blasphemy against God. And how does God respond? Well, time to wipe those people out and start over. Grace. I'll give them food. And not just food, but on at least one occasion, they had quail. This is the only time the quail is mentioned. So on this one twilight at sundown, quail came up from the ground and they ate. This is God's grace. But before that happens, Moses tells Aaron, call the people together, get their attention. And as soon as they come together, and as soon as Aaron draws their attention, they turn and look and they see in the pillar the glory of God. The impressiveness, awesomeness, sense of divine greatness. It's difficult to describe in words, but it would have been felt. would have been felt in fear, in awe, in amazement. There would have been an undeniable sense that they were in the presence of one who was truly worthy of worship and adoration and who could not be opposed. And that one who spoke to them through Moses says in the next 12 hours, I'm going to give the people meat and bread. So first, the quail. It's of secondary importance. It only happens this one time. What sustains them through the journey for 40 years is the bread. Look at verse 14 and 15. The Bible tells us that once the dew evaporated, the Israelites saw something they hadn't ever seen before. The description is, is translated well this way. There, on the surface of the wilderness, was a thin, crisp substance, thin like frost on the ground. In other words, it was flaky. Uh, maybe, maybe like a pie crust. This miraculous. You know, there have been some people who have tried to explain it. Because they have to explain it. Um, apart from God. And so, <laughs> there's, there's an explanation that seems to have some traction. Where it is, it's the sap that comes from a certain bush. And that sap is edible and <laughs> bread-like. The, the problem with that is, this provision followed them where they went. No one else enjoyed it. There was bread like wafers. We're going to read later. Like wafers made with honey. Not only did God's grace just say, okay, here, you'll get by on this, rice crackers. But God's grace said, let me give you wafers made with honey. Now, I'm a food guy. That sounds like dessert. It was plenty for everyone in the camp. Plenty. It never ran out for 40 years. And if you don't use it or whatever's not used isn't going to be enjoyed by the people following you. I mean, seriously, if this, if this congregation of people moving through the wilderness is producing a trail of limitless supply of food, there would have been people or animals or something eventually following, right? Like, whew, there's good stuff happening out here in the wilderness. No, God says, and when the sun comes up and hits it, it's going to melt away. 
the miracle will be confirmed in the fact that it's just this location for just these people just when they needed it. When the people see it in verse 17, they say something kind of funny. Look at verse 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, Manna! That's literally what they said. What is it? Means manna. Now, manna is going to get cooler terms later. It's going to be called the bread of heaven or the bread of God. But manna means, what is that? That's literally what manna means. They had no idea what the manna was. Moses has to tell them, this is God's provision. Listen to what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 8. Moses said, and he humbled you and let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you didn't even know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This manna, this what is it, when they had grumbled, is the wonderful grace of God. Now, before I move away from this point, I, I want to take a minute and explain that it's possible that you have heard of the grace of God and your response to it is still today, what is it? You've heard that the eternal, everlasting God became incarnate and dwelt among us. You've heard that He lived sinlessly. You, you heard people talk about Him dying substitutionally in someone else's place. And you have heard that He rose from the dead in victory. And you've heard that, and, and you probably ha have a mental agreement with it. You're like, that sounds like a history that is well-received. But at a heart level, you might be here today and say, what is it? I want you to know that it is the grace of God. It is the saving, redeeming grace of God. Because all of us are like the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness. We have all sinned, everyone, and fallen short of the glory of God. But even in our sin, He has shown His grace to us. And to all who would believe, Jesus is the miraculous, saving grace of God. I, I just want to say, if, if you're still asking, what is it? I hope that today you'll hear it for the first time new. And that the Spirit will reveal to you what the grace of God in Christ is. And if you have any more questions, I hope that you'll come see me afterward. I'd love to talk more about His grace. After their sin, and after His grace, there is also His law. It is the command in connection with the manna. So in verse 16, right away we see there's a command. Moses commands them to take what they need and gather it into small bowls, one omer per person. Moses tells them, just take your daily supply, verses 19 through 20. This is the first part of what was said earlier in verses 4 and 5, that God would test the people. <laughs> and this, this is undeniably relevant for us. We sin, 
God shows grace. Then he says, now here's, here's what I want you to do. Okay. And then we don't do it. So he tells the people, I want you to go out every day and gather an omer per person. So if you have five people in your tent, go gather five omers of manna. Okay. And then some people go out and they see all this manna everywhere. Remember, what's, whatever's left is going to melt when the sun comes up. They see all this manna. And some people are like, whoa, hey, what if this doesn't come back tomorrow? We better take extra. And you know how the story goes? They take extra. They go back into their tents. They eat what they can eat that day. Like, whew, that was, a, that was a full. That was, I'm taken care of. That was good. And I've got this over here that I can take care of tomorrow. So they go to bed. And when they wake up in the morning, it's, it's spoiled. And the Bible says that it has worms in it, probably maggots. And so the bread spoils instantly. But it shouldn't be in your tent anyway. God told you to take what you could eat today. The honey wafers that you could eat today. Not for the next week. Because he's going to teach them, you can't live by manna but by the words that come out of my mouth. And I told you, just take today's, and I'll take care of you tomorrow. We're learning that, aren't we? We're still learning that. We're learning to pray like our Savior taught us, give us this day our daily bread. We're learning to delight in the law of God. Would you take your Bibles to Psalm 19? Psalm 19. It is not a simple exercise to learn to delight in the law of God. But here is some wisdom literature that should help. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired. The words that proceed from the mouth of God, His commands, His instructions, should be sought after more earnestly than gold even in fine gold, even in sweet honey dripping from the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So, live by the word that came out of the mouth of God and don't bring spoiled, maggot-infested bread into the tent. Live by the Word of God, and tomorrow there's going to be plenty to fill all of your bowls with enough for the next day. That's the nature of the law of God. It is good. It provides. It is always faithful. That's what I want to take us to lastly. The faithfulness. Sin, grace, law, and faithfulness. In faithfulness, we see manna and the Sabbath. I want to give you from here three points. Three subpoints to this main point on faithfulness. First is the practice of Sabbath. I don't have a lot of time in this particular sermon to articulate 
all that the Sabbath is, its nature in creation, its, uh, its remade nature in the resurrection of Christ. But, first of all, the practice of Sabbath. On the sixth day of the week, on Friday, God commands them, God speaks to them. The word that comes from God is, not today, today go out and get two days' work. On Friday, go get two days' work. Now, on the other days when they got two days' worth, the bread spoiled. But he says, on Friday, go get two days' worth. And then bring it in, and you can, you can bake it and prepare it. And that's what you'll eat on Saturday. Some people do, and some people don't. Some people get Fridays, and then on Saturday, they head out again. And God looks at Moses and says, How much longer are you going to disregard what I say? There are people walking around on Saturday. <laughs> right? Here it comes. What happened? We told you to get two days worth yesterday. Because there wouldn't be any today. Because today is a unique day. Today is a day when we operate in a Godward way. That's, that's what it means to be created in the image of God, right? It doesn't mean God has ten fingers. It means we do God things. And God rested on the seventh day. And so he tells his people, rest. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I will take care of all of these things. The Sabbath goes back to Genesis 2. And here, Moses and Aaron say, there's going to be enough so that tomorrow you can rest and not go out and gather. So trust and obey. God will provide. One commentator says this, the day of Sabbath has now changed, of course, from the last day of the week to the first because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the second Adam. He's made a new beginning, founded a new humanity by the cross. And his resurrection on the first day of the week, the day when light was created in the creation week, Jesus is the light of the world, risen in victory over the grave, bringing life and immortality to light. So, this is why we're here today. This is why... Our day of memorial is Sunday. Look at verse 27 and 28 for just a moment. What I alluded to earlier. The seventh day some of the people went out and gathered, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? By the way, I'm struck by the corporate nature of the communication. God says to Moses, how long will you? Now, maybe there was a moment in Moses' heart when he went, I'm in my tent. I didn't know they were out there. Why are you yelling at me? <laughs> because there's this beautiful, you means you. That's beautiful. I, I hope that you delight in that. Sometimes we feel a little bit of 
maybe resistance to this idea of corporate identity? Like, have you ever looked at the garden and said, I didn't eat that. I didn't fall. Why, why am I guilty for what Adam and Eve did? And we, we, we get a little bit like, wait, I don't know if that's fair. Well, I want to remind you that there's a mound outside of Jerusalem where Jesus died in our place. And if you don't want to be associated with Adam in the garden, you also, by that same logic, don't want to be associated with Christ at the cross. And so here, Moses is hearing from God and saying, oh, oh yeah, all of us. Are we our brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. The Bible answers that question through the whole text, the whole Bible. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. Cain asked that question in Genesis when he kills his brother. And the Bible answers it. And here's one of the answers. Moses, why are you out looking for manna? What? We are? I am? And he goes and corrects it. It's sad, isn't it? The way in this text, in this one chapter, you find the people who have been, and we're talking about first generation eyewitnesses to the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and quail coming up ground and, and manna just showing up. And in this chapter, we find them committing the sins of omission and commission. Some days they go out and get too much. Some days they don't go out and get enough that they were told to go out and get. They omit getting the Sabbath day supply. Sounds a lot like Romans 7, doesn't it? The things that I'm supposed to do, I don't. And the things I'm not supposed to do, I do. And I, I just want you to know, friend, that we can all walk in these shoes. We can relate to this. We struggle and commit these sins of omission and commission. And then I want you to see next, there is a, in God's faithfulness, there's a preservation of testimony. Verses 31 through 34, Moses is told to take steps to be sure that the people never forget that God provided. Take, take a jar, take an omer full and seal it. And eventually Aaron's going to put that before the the testimony, the law of the Lord, it's going to be there as a reminder to all the people that God provides for them. That the Lord is their God. That He is leading them. Until they reach the promised land. They will survive on this manna in the wilderness all the way through the journey. God's provision won't run out. His mercy and His grace will be new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. The Lord's Supper is an ongoing memorial for us. It highlights this good news. The Lord is our God. His mercy and grace endure, and He is faithful. The Lord's Supper is more vivid to us than the manna and the water in the wilderness was for them. We know precisely what has been provided. They're learning all this. Dimly, we might say. 
bread from heaven? What is the nature of this? Well, Jesus actually teaches it. Would you turn your Bibles to John chapter 6? This is the third point that I want to give you from God's faithfulness. The first one being the practice. The second one being the preservation. And the third one being the picture. The picture of Christ. Jesus makes that clearest in John 6. There's a huge crowd that's been gathering to follow Jesus because he's been making food. (laughs) Food out of nothing. He's been producing food for thousands. And he's got a big crowd. And they come to him and John 6, 26. Jesus responds to their desire for another meal. Truly, truly, this is for sure. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, uh, which the Son of Man will give for you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Well, what sign are you going to do to prove that you're the one sent? So that we would believe. What work would you perform? For example, just one idea is, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, even in hearing that Christ could give for them what was sufficient for eternal life, they divert the conversation back to, but what about lunch? We're kind of out here following your preaching ministry, and I don't see a convenience store. So, food then? And so there's this really kind of underhanded, conniving way of saying, Oh, oh, remember back in Exodus 16? 32, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses... Who gave the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So now we understand the manna was meant to point our attention to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I won't cast them out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, 
but raise it on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him on the last day. So, the Lord's Supper. Pilgrim, foreigner, stranger, exile, alien. In your wander through the wilderness, there's all sorts of peril. And you're probably going through some now. Maybe you've been through some bigger ones. Maybe there's some coming. And the question that we might be tempted to ask, will we be lost? Will we die here? Shall we perish? Is God too small to do anything about it? Or too indifferent to care? And you might have moments where you're legitimately tempted to doubt and to fear. And Jesus says, I've come down from heaven and this is the will of the one who sent me. I won't lose any of them. The bread from heaven gets all of God's people safely home. And that's what we celebrate. We come and we eat bread and we drink juice. And whether it's them drinking water made sweet in the wilderness or them eating bread that came down from heaven, they're sustained. They're shepherded safely home. The heart, the center of our satisfaction is Jesus. Our heart is made to be contented by our shepherd. He is the bread of heaven given for sinners. We come and we, we cling to him and we, we feel and we see and we, we taste the assurance as long as as we drink and as long as we eat, we proclaim His death till He comes again to deliver us safely home from the wilderness. And so we get to take communion two weeks in a row.